Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9, they tell a story of Noah, his family, in the flood. They tell a story of what God is doing at this point in time in all of creation. And if I look at what it tells, one of the first questions that comes to my mind is this. This is what happens when the world is destroyed, (laughs) when the world is undone, when creation is undone. And I feel this way, I connect with this way in so many ways because it brings up the question of who is God in the midst of what's happening here. And these are the same questions we ask. We ask, our world is undone, it's becoming undone, and who is God? What is he doing? Those are the questions we ask as people who follow Christ. Or for you, perhaps, as not someone who may not identify as a follower of Christ, you may be asking the same questions. And in truth, it comes back to what I know as human pride. The story tells the story in Genesis of a world that's consumed by evil and corruption. And our world is really the same, consumed by evil and corruption. The source and root of that is pride. And we all know pride. We really do. We all know pride. And I always think of every single post-apocalyptic movie, all these movies that talk about the coming undone of society through some sort of advancements of science and technology, it's all pride. Jurassic Park, DNA, pride. Um, Matrix, all these robots and AI taking over the world, pride. Terminator, pride. It is pride at the source of all these coming undone world global events that impacts the big, but it impacts the small. It impacts the everyday life that we experience. It's pride. You can root the source in pride. It is pride that undoes creation here. It's pride that brings the flood upon the people of the earth in this moment here. And it's pride that will undo us if we cannot let go. If we cannot let go and lay it before the Lord and invite him in his mercy to care for us, to care for our world. The world is destroying itself. Genesis 6 is bridging everything that's happened with Adam and Eve, with their family, after coming out to the garden, after finding a world that's broken in the midst of complete toil, and then generations and generations have passed where it's not just a few sins or the first murder, but murder is rampant. Evil is rampant. This is what, where we find ourselves in Genesis. And then when we read in 6.5, Genesis 6.5 is the first verse I'll read here with us this morning. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That that is what's consumed the world. And I see this in our world. It's all these echoes of God seeing what he saw. If you think about how, what God uses in terms of language when he creates the world, God saw the world that he created and he said it was good. We hear God sees the world and he says that it's not good. This is not what he's intended at all. And then they use the language of inclination, this inclination that, they are, that humans are turned towards evil. You could look at countless other places in the in Bible that actually affirm this, that people are turned towards evil, becoming undone by their own pride. And the Lord sees this, and he is overwhelmed by emotion. Read with me verse 6. Genesis 6.6, the Lord regretted that he had made the human beings on the earth and that his heart was deeply troubled. That's a verse, if you read, that it will really kind of 
overwhelm you a little bit. The Lord regretted that he made the humans of the earth. What does that mean? For, for God to regret, and this is where you have to get into this Hebrew root word, naham. For God to regret is for him to experience the sorrow and remorse and grief of what's taking place. To watch the world that he loves, and then also watch it become undone. That God suffers with the world he created. He suffers with the world, just as he suffers with his people. And to watch his people under this kind of pain, his heart is wounded by this pain. You can look at different versions, and they'll use different words here, repent, regret. But it is God who is suffering and overwhelmed with anguish because he sees the evil taking place. It is not that he didn't know that this would take place, but he grieves it happening nonetheless because this is what sin does. Sin undoes the world. It undoes me. It undoes you. God is not only grieving, but he is also angered. Really, the flood comes at this point early in creation where basically God's saying, enough is enough. Enough is enough. This is wrong. I will have no part of it. And it actually limits God's capacity to bless the world if he continues to bless the world but it continues to go its own way. And I think about this, I imagine how God re- feels, or re- feels now, today, in response to the injustice in the world, to the sexual exploitation in all of the world, towards the injustice, the pain, the hurt, the murder, toxic, divisive talk, or even just the division in his church. How this impacts God, that he grieves and sorrows over this division. And this is what human pride does. This is what sin does. The first point I want to make, and I have three points here about what God is doing in the midst of storms in Genesis 6 and beyond. And the first is that in storms or in this flood that God calls us out of sin. He calls his people out of sin and saying, this is not right. This is not justifiable. It doesn't matter how you slice it that this is not part of my plan for you. I'm a big Star Wars nerd, so there was a show that came out a couple years ago that, was, that had this refrain, this is the way, this is the way. It's a Star Wars show. I'm not, I won't bother explaining because it would take too much explanation. Well, God is saying to this, this is not the way. That God's calling them away from sin, calling them out of it. And that is what the flood is doing, and that's what storms do for us too. Calls us out of sin, calls us out of the brokenness we were in. Because sin prevents God's blessing upon creation and his people. It twists it. It distorts it. So this is part of why God brings the flood. Now we have the situation in context. And now we have the family and the person, which is Noah. Noah and his family. And immediately you learn all these things about Noah that tells you everything you need to know. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his people in his time. And he walked faithfully with God. That probably tells you anything that you need to know about Noah, really. The idea that he walks closely with God in the midst of a world and community of people that are doing the exact opposite. In other places in Scripture, in 2 Peter 2, Noah is referred to as the preacher of righteousness. And so in the midst of all these people, by faith, and this is Hebrews eleven seven, by faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that is, keeping, that is in keeping with faith. And then we have the family of Noah. 
which I always think, why does Noah's wife not have a name? I always, you know, I ask these questions and I don't have good answers. But Noah is, and his family looks like Noah and his wife and then his three sons, Ham, Japheth, and Shem. And then they have wives also, eight people in all. And God says to Noah, build an ark. I'm bringing a flood on all this world. Bring an ark. Now, the word ark is actually, there's other Hebrew words for boat. It's not a good word for boat. That's why when you, when you re- read different children's books or different readings trying to describe the story of Noah, it's interesting because the word ark here is actually probably closer to the word chest or box. The God's saying in some way, build a box. Build a chest, build a box, and a really big one. You look at the size of this thing. I don't have a picture for you this morning, but it's a massive box. It says that it's supposed to be 300 cubits long. 300 cubits long. The cubit is probably about a foot and a half. So in terms of just length alone, it's about 450 feet long. It is a very long boat, box, chest thing. And the sole purpose is to survive, to provide safety for Noah and his family and all the animals God's in. He's preserving creation, but he's saying, I'm done with all of this that's taken place. The evil, corrupt world that is coming apart so much to the point that it cannot receive my blessing. And so then this is what uh, it says in Genesis 6:17. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And mere mention of the covenant, it just signals that the story ends with rescue, that the story ends with salvation, the idea that God is going to bring apart judgment and purification in the world, but he's going to bring rescue and hope that what he's doing is part of his large plan to secure rescue and hope for his people. God will save the covenant family, family the family he makes his own. God will bear the responsibility of the covenant and make sure that it is fulfilled. The flood is God's way of saying no more violence, but it is also undoing creation in so many ways. In Genesis 6, 7, 15, if you flip there, you'll see this. Pairs of all creatures that have breath of life. The waters are coming by now, by the way. The pairs of all creatures that have breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. And then the Lord shut him in. That God, there is no open door or plan with the boat. That God himself closes the door. And I think that's just a signal, even when you're going to read an ancient, holy inspired book of Scripture, that God is so personally involved with the people here, just as he is with you and me. That God personally shuts the door. God personally secures the people so they are safe and sound for the journey and struggle ahead. And then what you see here with the floodwaters coming down is the reversal of creation. If you remember, the chaotic waters that creation came about. God brought order to creation, and instead of the waters being brought to order, chaos is happening. Waters are coming down. It's an undoing of creation. And just to summarize here, the building of the ark, through the building of the ark, through the storm, the storm, God is preparing Noah. 
He's preparing Noah for the flood that is to come. He is preparing him not just simply to survive, which we understandably have had a survival mentality. It's not just to survive, but it's also about the outcome. It's about a new way of life on the other side of the flood, on the other side of the storm. The events will require that Noah not only trusts that God will see Noah to the other side, but that God has the best intentions in mind for him. And I always think about this, and perhaps I've said this in other messages, when you relate to God, when you think about God, do you relate to God as a giver? Does he provide for you? Does he instill hope in you? Does he, is he a giver? Or is he someone who takes away? And if God is a giver, does he get good gifts? And if the gifts that God gives you are they far better than anything we can possibly ask or imagine? You think about this way, and you think about, I think about it from the perspective of a parent, that I give things to my kids that they don't necessarily want, but I know it will be good for them. That God is providing the gift to know a preparation so they could receive his promises and actually cling to them, that that's actually how they get through the storm, that they receive the promises and cling to them. That's actually how they get through the storm. I'm going to continue to move through the story and do some summary points at the end. Even in the aftermath of the flood, which lasts, the flood lasts 150 days, Genesis tells us, 150 days. It's a long time in a box. 150 days. They start to see the waters subside, And Noah with his family and all the animals, they start to wonder, is it time to come out of the boat? They send a raven. They send a dove. There's all kinds of ideas around why that's taking place, but they wait. And God himself signals the end. He says in Genesis 8, 15, Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds and the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. It's a restatement of the original creation commission. Be fruitful and multiply that Noah and his family have been given a new earth and responsible to care for the world. And then what we see here is that Noah's first reaction is to give thanks. That Noah gives thanks. He makes an offering to God, and God receives the offering. And then we have this movement where it is not just this offering exchange, but God makes a covenant. And it is why it's so wonderful to have baptism as part of the service, thinking about the flood, that God makes a covenant with the family, just as God has made a covenant with you and I, and he's brought us near, but we will fail. We will fail the covenant. We do not keep the covenant, but the Lord does. He keeps promises to us that we can never keep to him. And this is why he established it, and it's more of a reaffirming of creation covenant that God has with the people in creation than a completely new creation. If I read in Genesis 9 now, Genesis 12, God says this, This is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow. I've set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the, fl- in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all creatures between me and you and all living creatures and every kind. And never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. 
God himself gives himself a way to remember. Is God going to forget that he said something? (laughs) That the way he almost creates a rainbow is not just to remind us or creation. It's to, to remind God himself. And the way I'd think about that is in my closest relationship, there are certain phrases that exist that if I say the phrase, they know exactly what it means. It means far more than anything else. If I say, I think some of my close friends who I were, I was just close accountability partners with early in my life. If I say, you know, for us, the act of prayer was so important that we wanted to come up with a different word than amen because we always said amen. It's scripturally, of course, but we wanted to have another word. So we would say, let it be so. And that's almost for us, it was like a way of double amening something in the sense that we affirm it in our own language and our own, and our own commitment And God himself is creating a way for him to affirm this promise. And that's why the rainbow stands. It reflects. It provides a gift and a sign of God's pledge of grace. Whenever you see a rainbow, it's built in creation. The rest of creation gives us awe and wonder, but so so do rainbows. They instill awe, thanksgiving, gratitude, joy, wonder, humility. And not that a rainbow... It always pops up after every cloud, after every storm. But that when it is seen, God is reminded of his covenant. And we remember God's covenant. That we remember God has promised to bless us and to give us grace. And so just like a storm helps prepare us to receive promises, to cling to them, God also commissions us. At this moment, Genesis 9, they're at the very end of the storm. God commissions them, remember all that I've done for you. Cling to it and actually live out that practice. Live out that remembrance. Live out that witness. Because these promises, they reveal who God is and what God's purposes are. And one of the great pictures of this is the storybook Bible. If you know the story of Noah from the storybook Bible, it captures this beautifully. I have an image here, and I'm going to read a quote from it here because it connects and lands so well. This idea that from the very beginning of time, God has a better plan in store, all the way back to Genesis 6. And the rainbow and the flood help signal that. Can we share, share that, that picture? Here's a picture right out of the book here, and I'm going to read a quote from this page. But you can see a little bit of the rainbow there. And he says this, this is God's better plan, a plan not to destroy the world, but to rescue it, a plan to one day send his one and only son, the rescuer, God's strong anger towards hate and sadness and death would come down once more, but not on his people or his world. No, God's war bow, think of rainbow as a bow, God's war bow was not pointing down at his people. It was pointing up. It was pointing up into the heart of heaven. Rainbow is an image, if you think of a bow and arrow, of a bow that's laid down in the clouds. It's laid down. God's laid down his bow. Instead of it directing and pointing at us or God's people, it's pointing up to heaven. And so I I sometimes use this language of in the storm, in the flood, God does this. God reveals this. But it is because it is anticipating the fact that in Christ, God does these things in our heart. In Christ, he draws us into new creation. Noah, as a righteous person all the way back, is a type. It's a person that anticipates Jesus as the rescuer, Jesus as the faithful one for us. Because Jesus is the faithful person who is not just kind of righteous. He is righteous. 
And he leads and guides his family to refuge in him. But he does, not by, he does so by going into the depths of death himself. The depths of the water and the chaos that ensues all of creation. And if we follow in Christ, we die with Christ. We die with Christ so that we might also rise in new life with him. So in the storm, in the flood, but it's in Christ that we truly encounter God's promises and truth and the truth that the promises reveal. And that's why I want to say these points over again, that God calls us out of sin. In Christ, when you see Jesus, you are called out of sin into repentance. In Christ, you are prepared to receive his promises, not just as something to add on to your life, but to shape your life, to shape the hope you have in Jesus and in nothing else. You are shaped and prepared to receive them as the thing that will get you through the storm. And it's in Christ that he commissions you. He commissions you. He sends you out to live out in remembrance of him, to live out in truth in him. That this is not an act someone else has been appointed for you, but he's actually asked you to do this, true to who he's making and shaping you to be. It's in Christ that we have a promise of peace for this world. You look at the world of Genesis 6 and beyond, and it is incredibly messed up, and it's not that different now. And yet, even though God knows that he promises he will not flood the world again, but that God will bring an end to all suffering He will bring an end to all suffering, and he will put to death all evil and injustice. That's what we have in Christ. And he points and directs us to this because it will be fulfilled not through um, people who are broken and humbled and weary. It is through Christ as we cling to the promises of Christ. He gives us the power through the Holy Spirit. God does promise a peace with a final enough. And that is the hope. So the invitation is that we cling to Christ, that we pursue Christ, or as I was thinking about this morning, we run to Christ. Not to all the different ways you can run, but you run to Christ. You seek your home and help and promise in him and in nothing else. It's how the family is drawn together, because it's in Christ we're given a new commission through baptism. One of the Old Testament commentaries I read this week, Derek Kidner He says this, that covenant signs, which we have a covenant sign here of the rainbow post-flood, covenant signs are seals of an accomplished fact. Covenant signs are seals of an accomplished fact. We enter the ark with Jesus. The death that we should have died. And we don't enter the ark as people who feel like we have it figured out. We don't enter the ark as people who feel like, oh, I think I'd be okay. I'm a pretty good swimmer. We enter the ark as people who know our need. We know our brokenness. We know where hope actually comes from. And the ark, as I mentioned, a chest or a box, probably is best understood maybe more often than not as a coffin. It's a place of preservation in the midst of death. And we join Christ in the journey to death. It's what baptism images for us also. We join Christ in the image of journey to death, dying to ourselves. That's the human pride bit. While receiving the impact of God's promised rescue in Jesus. This Jesus takes the world and the curse upon himself. He takes it upon himself. In Christ, we see God so moved by love for us that he takes upon himself every suffering for our sins. And the New Testament, I'm not just making that connection out of the blue. The New Testament makes the connection too. I want to look in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3, where he says this. To those who were disobedient long ago, 
when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Saved through water, that they were given safe passage through the flood, the ark being the eight people, Noah, his wife, three sons, three wives. And the water, continuing in verse 30, 21, and the water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is in God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. The water itself doesn't save, but it is the resurrection of Jesus, which is what we remember when we baptize. The resurrection of Jesus, the water from the flood, our baptism, it testifies that we also are saved because God's deliverance is, God, is also seeing God's ark and his pledge, his promise that we will go before the Lord with a clean conscience. Can you imagine a day when you would go before the Lord in a clean conscience? Not by anything that you would do, some sort of incredible Bible reading plan or a heart change, a clean conscience that is secured to the resurrection of Jesus, that he does a work in your heart to prepare you. It's not by anything you would do, but through the saving resurrection of Jesus. And that's God's promise to you, that, God, that Jesus stands in the gap. He dies for your sins to present you as holy and blameless before the Lord, not because you are, but because Jesus is. When you think about the world we live in that's devoted to brokenness and sin, and it's all about pride, how you can make a stake in your world and make it for your own. But God looks at you, and he looks at you with mercy. And in truth, he doesn't just see your missteps and sin. What he sees is Christ. He sees Jesus alive in you. He doesn't see the bad thing you did yesterday or the thing you did earlier this week when you lied, when you had a difficult, hard, angry thought at someone. No, he doesn't see that. What he sees instead is Jesus alive in you, making you alive in his resurrection power. He sees this alive, and then he speaks love over you, not condemnation. He speaks grace over you and forgiveness. And God welcomes you home to him. The flood and the ark and the promise at the end helps us see what God is doing. It is the gospel in a large four-chapter literary sense. He's saying, come to me. I promise to keep you and draw you near to me. But it doesn't have anything to do with what you do. It's what Christ has done, will do in you. So do you cling to him? I'm going to invite the band to come up to invite us to continue in worship. But I also want to read another part of Peter's letters, and it's 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That God is patient with us. That's his promise. He's promised to be patient with you even when you don't want to hear this or you're not up for it today. He has promised to be patient with you. And part of those three things in Christ, being called out of sin, being prepared to receive God's promises, being commissioned to live a life of remembrance, it's directly, it puts us directly in tension with God and with Jesus because we're caught up with sin in the world and brokenness. We are not just prone to forget God's promises, but we're even resisted, resistant to receiving them as good for us. 
And we would sooner stay home sometimes than be commissioned to be sent out to be a witness to the world, because that's far easier. But then I asked you these three questions in the sense of what I would want you to reflect on this week. How has God called you out of sin? You know, it's probably different in the same of what is in Genesis 6, but it's personal to you. What does sin and brokenness look like for you? And how is God calling you out of that and his mercy and grace? How is God preparing you to receive his promises? Where you are, what is he actually preparing you for? And how is he sending you out? I look at these things and I see how God empowers us as his people to be witnesses in the world. And I know these three questions are ones we have to ask of ourselves. We have to ask this of ourselves because we remember God's promises and the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. We remember these things because they are ours. That we, God speaks God's promises over you, not because they're just something someone dropped on your front doorstep, because he has designed them in such a way that they would become part of your identity and who you are as a person of promise shaped by the love of God. So I don't know how you need to respond today, this week, but it is through asking these questions and doing it with lots of space and not that much distraction. Um, I welcome you to reflect and think about that because the good news is for you. And on that, I'd like to ask you to pray. Lord, you know the depths of our hearts. You see what we need. It is your hope when we come to this morning, we know is what we truly are in desperate need of. And I just pray you would make it clear how we do need to respond and to live life as God, as your family, as people who are committed to you. And I don't know what it is, whether it is we need to address things in our marriages, whether us as a single person, we are trying to find a way to get into community and connection and really just need your guidance and love and wisdom. Or I think about the burden of parents and grandparents and what we think about for our children and grandchildren. And I know, Lord, that we cannot do it apart from you. It is only through your promise and your resurrection that we can even do it. And so, Lord, I ask that you would give us the strength to see your rescue and to receive it as ours that we can receive your grace, that you are kind to us, that we can also be kind to ourselves, that we can receive challenge, that you are asking us to do difficult things, and at the same time, that can at the same time feel like freedom. Lord, we lay all this before you. Please humble us before you and help us to surrender more and more each day to you, Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray.